This episode is sponsored by our upcoming Day on Burnout online conference, taking place on February 27th, 2022. Burnout is a state of mental, emotional and physical exhaustion affecting 57% of the UK's population. If it's not managed properly, it can lead to feelings of detachment, cynicism and ineffectiveness, many of these symptoms we associate with clinical depression. Recent years have seen sharp increases in those experiencing it, with one survey reporting a 9% increase in 2021 compared with pre-COVID numbers in 2019. So for this event, we'll be focusing on science-based strategies for preventing burnout, building resilience, and setting up our lives in a way that enables us to flourish and contribute in the long run. The first talk will be on preventing compassion fatigue and will be from Francoise Matthew. The second will focus on the dangers of toxic productivity, why we need to stop, and how a healthy amount of inactivity can lead to heightened levels of creativity and a more fulfilling existence. The speaker will be Professor Josh Cohen from Goldsmiths University. And the final talk will be from Dr. Anna Lemke, who will present on how to reset your brain's dopamine balance and why understanding how dopamine works in the brain holds the key to overcoming addictive behaviours and living with a greater sense of balance and contentment in day-to-day life. If you have a nagging suspicion that there's a better way of being in this world than the frantic, always-on and stimulation-seeking norms of our society, then this event is for you. By attending live, you can interact with the speakers in the Q&A sessions, connect with like-minded participants during the conference, get CPD certification, as well as lifetime access to the recordings from the sessions meaning if you miss anything, you'll be able to catch up in your own time. As a listener of this podcast, you can get a discount on your ticket if you go to bit.ly forward slash burnout dash TWU and use the discount code POD when registering. That's POD, all one word, when registering. Hey everybody, welcome back to our second presentation today. It's on the, the neuroscience of yoga and meditation from Dr. Zara Lazar. So Dr. Lazar is an associate researcher in the psychiatry department at Massachusetts General Hospital and assistant professor in psychology at Harvard Medical School. The focus of her research is to elucidate the neural mechanisms underlying the beneficial effects of yoga and meditation, both in clinical settings and in healthy individuals. She is a contributing author to meditation and psychotherapy and has been practicing yoga and and mindfulness meditation since 1994. Dr. Lazar's research has been covered by numerous news outlets, including the New York Times, USA Today, CNN, and WebND, and her work has been featured in a display at the Boston Museum of Science. You can keep up to date with her work at her, and you can keep up to date with the latest developments from her lab on Twitter at Lab Lazar. So, Dr. Lazar, whenever you're ready, let's just get started. And I'm really excited about this one. Thank you for having me. This is a fun. <clears throat> well, good morning, everybody. Uh, it's 8 a.m. where I am. I realize it's afternoon for you. So, um, uh, so if you look over in the poll area, you'll see there's a poll, and a few of you have already started answering it. Um, and so the question, so we're going to talk today about yoga meditation. And so I just thought it'd be fun to start off by asking you, you know, so how many of you actually practiced yoga meditation before? Um, I know if I'd asked this like 10, 15 years ago, most of the answers we know, but I also know that it's getting increasingly popular. And so it's just curious to see, you know, how many people are actually practicing these days. Oop, the numbers are going way up. Oh, wow. Mostly yeses here. This is great. 
And a few no's, and that's okay too. Uh, wow, this is wonderful. Okay. Uh, 7% of the audience. Okay. Yeah. So let's keep that going in. Um, and so I guess while we're waiting for that, I'll tell you a little bit about my own story with how I got started doing this. So back, um, it was about 25 years ago now, maybe a little over. Um, I was a scientist and um, I was a runner and I overtrained and I hurt my knee and my lower back. And so I went to see a physical therapist and they told me that I had to stop practicing and just stretch. And um, I was kind of bummed, excuse me. But as I was living in the physical therapist's office, I happened to see an ad for a vigorous yoga class. And so I thought, oh, wow, this would be a great way to stay in shape and just stretch um, and, you know, but stay in shape, right? And so I went to the yoga class purely as a form of physical therapy. So that back 25 years ago when I started, I equated yoga with tinfoil hats, right? It was like, it was all malarkey. It was all hocus pocus. I, you know, and so the teacher would say, oh, you know, do this pose. It'll be good for you for this. And this pose will do that for you. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm here to stretch. But the amazing thing was that, you know, after a couple of weeks, I really started to notice a big change on me. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I started to notice that I was calmer. I was less reactive. That people who used to piss me off were not pissing me off so much anymore. Um, and just, I felt like I had, I was seeing the world in a completely new and different way that, you know, something had changed in my brain. And so I decided that, okay, I needed to understand this, you know, that I had to, you know, although I started happening, I wanted to understand what was happening to my brain. So after I finished my PhD, I switched and I've been doing this research ever since. And so I'll show you some of this research that we've been doing and other people have been doing to, um, you know, to try to understand exactly how it is that yoga and meditation work. All right, so it looks like, uh, so 72% of the audience is, is answered. So those of you maybe just joining, uh, there's a poll about have you practiced yoga or meditation before? And so far it's overwhelmingly yes. So about 60 of you, 58 of you, nine of you have said yes, and just two have said no. Uh, so for those of you who haven't practiced, hopefully uh, um, you'll get a good sense of what it is. And we're actually gonna practice in just a few minutes and explain it, and then we're gonna practice it so we get a chance to try it. And um, uh, uh, yeah, so we'll all learn a little bit more about it. Um, and also I'll just say, uh, and one question I always get is, well, you know, I practice yoga and meditation, or I practice Tai Chi, or I practice this type of yoga, or this type of meditation, I practice that type of meditation. You know, are they the same, are they different? Which one's the best? So I like to make it uh, analogies with exercise. Some people run, some people swim, some people lift weights, some people play uh, football, right? It's all good, it's all healthy, but obviously you're gonna work sl different muscles slightly differently. Um, and, you know, you know some you know, like weight-bearing exercises we know are good for, for you know, osteoporosis. <clears throat> Excuse me, a little horsey this morning. Um, you know, and cardio is good for certain things and, and whatnot. And so, uh, uh, and so similarly with the different types of yoga and meditation, the idea is that they're all generally good for reducing stress, but that, you know, what we're seeing is that slightly different parts of the brain are engaged. You know, just like, you know, running uses certain muscles, swimming uses certain muscles. This type of meditation enhances this part of the brain, that type of meditation enhances that part of the brain. And we're just not far enough along in order to say yet though that, okay, well, you know, this type of meditation is good for these type of people and 
this type of meditation is good for those sorts of people. Um, and so at this point, you sort of just have to try it and sort of see, you know, try a couple different ones and sort of see what works for you. All right, so now we're up to uh, still about 72% of the audience. So, okay. So it looks like, again, like overwhelmingly, most people are saying yes, they practice. So that's great. So let's dive in. All right, so like I said, there's a lot of different types of meditation. Today, we're going to talk specifically about mindfulness meditation, just because it's what I practice and what most of the research has been on so far. And so, um, so what exactly is it? So mindfulness is actually something very, very simple. Mindfulness is just, the one definition of it is, purposely paying attention to experiences in the present moment in a non-judgmental way. And this little uh, cartoon kind of captures that. So you have the guy and the dog, and the guy's walking there, and his mind is full, right? So he's thinking about his career, his relationships, you know, all the things that are happening in his life. And he's completely ignoring, you know, everything around him. Versus the dog is aware of the trees and the sun, probably picking up a couple nice smells, right? So the dog is sort of in the moment, right? And just experiencing what's actually happening versus the guy is completely oblivious. And that's really all that mindfulness is. It's just paying attention to present moment experience, right? And so right now, what are you experiencing? So right now, what are you experiencing? Can you notice, you know, the contact of your body with your chair or your sofa, whatever you're sitting on? You know, can you notice what sounds are going on around you? And that's as simple as that, right? That's, that's all mindfulness is. But the key thing is to do it in a non-judgmental way. <coughs> Excuse me. So for instance, imagine that right now, um, an ambulance went by outside your um, your window, or that someone in the neighborhood started jackhammering or you know, using a power uh, tool and was making a lot of noise. Can you just notice and say, okay, there's a lot of noise right now? Or are you going to respond like, oh my God, my neighbor is you know, power tooling, you know, using his power tools again, and oh, it's so noisy. Why doesn't he ever stop? Doesn't he know it's Sunday and he shouldn't be doing this? And oh, you know, and making the whole story and all the, the judgy, right? So it's, it's fine to say, okay, there's a loud noise and it's unpleasant, but we're trying to avoid the, all the story and the elaboration and the, um, you know, being judgy about it. Like, oh, this is too much. I don't like it. You know, I need to go talk to my neighbor to tell him he needs to stop doing this, right? So that's what we're trying to avoid and just be aware of, okay, there's sound. Um, and so uh, that's what mindfulness is. And so mindfulness meditation is just then practicing that for 20, 30, 40 minutes a day. And why would you do that? So again, a sports analogy. If I put you in the middle of a football field with a ball and told you to kick the ball into the goals, you know, you could do it, right? Pretty simple, pretty easy. But now if I put a bunch of, you know, professional football players on the field around you and told you, okay, go put the ball into the goals, you would not be able to do it, right? So similarly, in the heat of the moment during our everyday life, you know, it's like being on the field with all the other players, right? And so, so you know, the reason why football players practice and practice and practice is so that they can get used to, um, you know, just really get, you know, develop that skill of, uh, you know, of kicking the ball the way exactly the way we want it. Similarly, we practice mindfulness meditation in order to strengthen those neural circuits of mindfulness and present moment awareness so that in the heat of the moment during everyday life, we can call on them and we've got those skills, you know, and we can then navigate uh, through the ups and downs of everyday life, you know, skillfully 
just the same way that a professional football player, you know, can get the ball, you know, around everybody else and into the goal. So that's why we're doing it. That's why we practice meditation. So, um, uh, uh, and so what exactly is mindfulness meditation? So again, we're paying attention to the present moment on purpose without judgment. Typically, so like I said, you're sitting here, what are you paying attention to? Uh, so typically we pay attention to, um, uh, like I said, sounds in the room or breathing sensations, or some people will get like a flickering flame or something like that. Um, it doesn't really matter what you pay attention to. It's just having this awareness, this non-judgmental uh, awareness. And it develops many skills. So your mind starts to wander, and so you're going to bring it back. And your mind starts to wander again, and it brings it back. Because, you know, it's boring just watching your breath or just listening to sounds. And you start to think. It's like, oh, wait, no, hold on. I need to just pay attention. So you're really working on promoting to sustain attention. You're also developing something called meta-awareness, which is holding in mind the intention to stay focused while monitoring them for the presence of random thoughts. Right? What does that mean? It's sort of awareness of awareness. So can you... So it's not just that you're aware of the trees and the sunshine, but you know that you're aware of the trees and sunshine, right? It's not just that, oh yeah, there's trees in the background, but just that, oh yes, I'm looking at this tree right now, right? And just aware that you're looking at it. Um, it's also remembering to be the non-judgy, right? And to just be open and aware. And so for all of these reasons, people often refer to meditation as a form of mental training. Uh, because you really are training your mind to to do something that's not used to doing. All right, so let's try it. So uh, just get comfortable wherever you are, and you can keep your eyes open or closed, whatever is comfortable for you, and just uh, settle in. And just notice, we'll start off by noticing the contact of our body with the chair. Right. And that could be either the back of the chair or the seat of the chair. And just noticing, you know, how do you know you're making contact? What's the actual sensation that you're feeling? Perhaps there's a bit of pressure. Perhaps you have some tingling, perhaps um, some warmth. And just notice that. And now briefly scan your attention through your body, starting with the head. And just noticing, okay, how do I know where my head is in space? What does my head actually feel like? What about the neck and shoulders? You know, how do you know without looking where your shoulders are? <clears throat> what is the actual sensation? What do you feel when you think about your shoulders? Down into your hands, resting on your lap. Now moving into the torso, front and back. Perhaps noticing uh, breathing sensations. How do you know you're breathing? What's the actual sensation of the chest or belly expanding and contracting? And then sweeping attention down to the legs, to the feet. Noticing the feet making contact with the floor. Again, noticing pressure, tingling perhaps, temperature.
And then opening up to a sense of the whole body. And letting attention sort of roam around to whatever sensation is most prominent, but keeping it within the body. So perhaps the back, and then the soles of the feet, and then the breath. Not directing it, but letting it wander within a constrained field. When you notice the mind has wandered, just gently bring it back. No judging. Just, ah, mind has wandered. Back to the body. And now slowly bring your attention back into the room. Open the eyes. Back to the screen. So that's it. And then the idea is just keep practicing that for another 10, 15, 20, 30 minutes. Um, the recommendation is to do it 40 minutes a day every day. Some people do that. Some people <laughs> practice just 20 or 30 minutes a day. Some people practice just five or 10 minutes a day. And it's really, it's all good. Uh, there's no shoulds, there's no must do. Uh, there's a really great app called Headspace that is uh, created in England. Um, and the uh, app is just 10 minutes a day. So even if you've been doing it for years, all the guided meditations are just 10 minutes a day. What I like about Headspace is that they have a lot of information about how to apply mindfulness to different aspects of life. So they'll have guided meditations specifically around, you know, difficult work situations or difficult people um difficult family situations um you know, around money around you know hobbies you know around all sorts of different types of uh, uh topics and so uh, so it's kind of nice and you know many many different types of uh, guided meditations there's numerous other apps around these days though uh some have meditations that are longer you know some have a focus and don't some are just you know all types of meditation so uh uh, you know, I highly recommend using apps. They're, they're, they can be very useful, but I also very strongly recommend working with an actual teacher. Uh, there's nothing, you know, if you got questions, it's good to be able to talk to someone about, okay, am I doing it right? I'm having trouble with this, you know, these sorts of things. And so it's really useful to have, have a teacher. All right, back to the science. So back about 40 years ago now, there was a guy named John Kabat-Zinn who he was went to Asia to learn meditation and he was practicing. And often when you sit for extended periods of time, your body starts to cramp up a little bit and you can have pain in the knees or the back. And the instructions are just be mindful of it. You know, so you know, rather than trying to move and do everything, it's just like, okay, just be aware of the sensation of the pain mindfully. And when you do that, it starts to shift and change the pain and you get a completely new relationship to pain. 
And so he had this aha moment. He realized, wow, you know, this would be great for people with chronic pain. And so he was the first person to bring back mindfulness to the West. And he created a secular eight-week program. Um, and the idea was, so he took out all of the Eastern philosophy and he just taught the mindfulness um, to patients with chronic pain. And it was really great. But the really wonderful thing is that people said, well, yeah, it's good for the pain, but it's also helping with anxiety and stress and depression and all sorts of other issues. And so the original program was called Mindfulness-Based Pain Reduction, but now it's the Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction Program. And what it is, it's an eight-week program and it's weekly classes where you get a little bit of stress education, but you also practice mindfulness for 40 minutes in class. And then you're given guided recordings and told to practice at home every day for 40 minutes. And there's three main practices. So one is sitting and doing kind of what we just did, um, where there's sort of just an open awareness and awareness sort of the breathing. Um, that's just sort of the normal one. There's also a body scan where you sort of like we did at the beginning, where you're moving your mind through um, your attention through your body. You do it very, very slowly over the course of 40 minutes. And then the third one is a very gentle mindful yoga. And this is not the type of yoga you get at the gym, right? So this is not about strengthening um, your muscles or toning your body. It's about being mindful. So can you be mindful as you move? So as you raise your arms, how do you know your arms are moving? What's the actual sensation of the arms moving, right? And then as you move them down and just being really slow and gentle um, and just, you know, as a way to have something to pay attention to. Um, and so again, you do those, one of those every day for 40 minutes. And then another key element of the program is called Anytime Mindfulness. Because our goal is we really want to try to be mindful throughout our entire day, right? And this is how we really then are able to, you know, navigate through the, the soccer defenders, the, the football defenders. And what that is, is while you're washing the dishes, can you just be aware of the water falling on your hands? What is it, how do you know your hands are, are being immersed in water? Um, you know, as you're walking, you know, from your house to your car, can you just notice the sunshine? Can you notice this feeling of uh, your feet making contact with the pavement? You know, as you're talking with people, can you be aware of the fact that you're talking? <laughs> so that's really the goal of what we're trying to do is to really build up the strength and the muscle, the mindfulness muscle, so that we can bring mindfulness to all aspects of our life. All right. And I'm just looking at the poll again here. So at this point, we got 90 answers. So again, there's still something about 70 people in the audience. Okay. So it looks like, yeah, that most of you do practice. Um, okay. Uh, all right. So now there's been numerous scientific studies. There's been about 5,000 studies at this point, at least, on this type of meditation. And they've shown that it's really effective for reducing stress both self-reported stress, but also biomarkers of stress, such as cortisol, inflammation, these sorts of things. It also reduces symptoms associated with depression, anxiety, pain, and insomnia. And in the second half of the talk today, we're gonna to talk about pain and anxiety. And then also there's been numerous studies showing that it actually increases attention um, as well as working memory and mental flexibility. And that's what I'm gonna to talk to you about in the first half of the, uh, the talk today, is about the impact on the cognition. Um, so here was, there was this um, called a meta-analysis. So this, we, these were all the different studies that were on training different types of cognition. And so the, the dotted line is sort of a, 
you know, baseline. And then the little dot shows that for each of these studies, how big was the effect? And so you can see that on the most part, so for attention, um, you know, there were some that showed, oh, actually, no, I'm sorry, this is, this is, they're all increases. This is having to do with the, the magnitude. So this is considered a, a robust, it's past the dashed line, to the right of the dashed line, it's considered a robust impact on that um, uh, function. So in terms of attention, surprisingly, there was a small effect, but most of the studies just had small effect, and some had a robust effect, but most of them were kind of small effects. But memory was very well impacted, right? You see very strong impacts on memory. Similarly, executive functioning, and I'll talk a little bit more about that in a little bit, but that's sort of, um, you know, sort of uh, doing sort of higher order tasks. Again, very strong impact on that. Um, and then others such as cognitive flexibility and meta awareness. Again, we have pretty strong, robust effects on that. So, um, <clears throat> and this is just one example of one of those studies. So these were uh, college students. They were randomized to either mindfulness class or to a nutrition class. And they did the verbal sub subsection of the GRE, which is the GRE is the, um, in order to get, after you graduate from college, to get into a graduate program, you, these are the tests that you take. So they're standardized tests of um, your language and math skills and science skills. Um, they also did a working memory task and they did this pre and post training. And what you can see is that for the nutrition class, there's basically no change in performance. Um, and this is on the working memory task. And that, um, actually, no, this is the GRE, this is the, the standardized test, but there was a nice increase in the, um, uh, the meditation class, the mindfulness class, both, um, oh, sorry. Yeah, so this is the, the, the sorry. This is the, the graduate exam test, and this is the working memory task. So in both of them, there's a really nice increase. And then the other one was mind wandering. So what this was is they gave the people a really boring text to read. And knowing that their mind is going to wander. And then every so often, a little pop-up would appear, you know, this is on the computer. And would say, were you paying attention just now, or is your mind wandering? And also, if at any point they noticed their mind was wandering, they're supposed to hit the button and say, yeah, okay, my mind was wandering, and then go back to reading the test, text. And what you can see is that, again, for the nutrition class, there's basically no change. But for the mindfulness group, there was both a decrease in both the computer caught and the self-reported, showing that they were better able to, you know, this is the meta awareness. They're able to notice, oh, hey, my mind is wandering. I'm bringing it back, you know, sort of before it starts to wander, um, and also just to maintain on the first place. I um, mean, of course, as we get older, this it gets harder and harder to do this. <laughs> Our mind tends to wander more and more. But you know, these then these are you know college students, but they're able to to sustain their attention a bit. Um, all right. So now, so this is all great. So the question I want to know was, okay, well, what about the brain? can we actually show the meditation change of the brain? So the first study we did, oh, so sorry. Um, this is just to let us know. So oftentimes you'll see pictures of brains with yellow spots on them. And sometimes the yellow spots indicate brain activity. So what you do is you put the person in the scanner, you have them do some sort of task, and the yellow spots show where the brain is active during task A versus task B, or task A versus this line they're doing nothing. Um, and I'm going to be showing you some of that data in a little bit. But we can also look at the structure of the brain. So we can go in, and so the cortex is this little strip of 
gray matter between the red and yellow lines. Most of the brain is actually white matter. White matter is just the connections between this region, this region, and that region, and this region. The actual gray matter, which is where the neurons interact and where the action actually happens, is just in this little tiny strip between the red and yellow lines. And the computer can go in and actually measure how much gray matter we have. And so what I'm going to show you in the next few slides is areas where there is more gray matter um, in meditators versus controls or time one versus time two. Um, so the first study we did was long-term meditators versus controls. And um, we, these are people who have been practicing on, they had to practice for at least three years and have a daily practice for at least three years and to have done at least one long meditation retreat. And um, versus people who had no prior meditation experience. And what we saw was that there were several brain regions where there's more gray matter in these long-term meditators compared to controls. This big yellow spot here, that's an area called the insula. It's involved in integrating thoughts, senses, and emotions. And it's also involved in awareness and control of visceral processes such as heart, um, heart rate and breathing and hunger and whatnot. So it makes a lot of sense that, um, you know, since that's what we're spending our time doing when we meditate is, you know, sort of monitoring our body and monitoring our breathing, that that should be an area that gets, uh, uh, you know, sort of like building up your muscles, right? The other region was here in the front of the brain. And this is an area involved in working memory and selective attention. And it's the number one region associated with food intelligence. And I'm going to talk a lot more about food intelligence in a few minutes. But basically, food intelligence is what we've commonly referred to as IQ, right? So this higher order executive functioning um, and problem solving ability. All right. So now this first study, like I said, was long-term meditators versus controls. And I got a lot of pushback. You people said, well, you know, people who practice meditation, they're just different, right? You know, a lot of them are vegetarian and, you know, they have a very different lifestyle. So maybe it had something to do with that. Or maybe it's just that people who have more gray matter, you know, they're more likely to stick with it or they're more likely to meditate in the first place. So a lot of people said, well, you know, you can't prove that it's actually the meditation, right? And they just that they're just they have their brains are different. And to be fair, that's true. You know, we don't know. So, but then I started thinking about it and I thought about these eight-week programs because those eight-week programs are highly effective for reducing stress and depression and anxiety. So I thought, wow, I wonder, can we actually show changes in brain structure after just eight weeks? So that's what we did. We took people and we put them in the scanner and then they went through the um, MBSR program or we just scanned them eight weeks later. There's two groups. One group got meditation, got mindfulness-based stress reduction. The other group just got scanned eight weeks apart. And what we found was that indeed there was a difference. So one difference we found was that the amygdala got smaller and that the change in the amygdala correlated with stress. The amygdala is the main part of the brain associated with emotions and in particular with fear, anxiety, and stress. And what we saw was that, like I said, that the smaller the amygdala got, the more stress reduction people reported. And this was important because a lot of people said, oh, well, you know, they're going to the program and they're saying they're less stressed because, well, you know, just it's eight weeks later, it's two months later, you know, just whatever was stressing them out has passed. Or, you know, they paid a lot of money to take this class and they invest a lot of time and energy into it. So maybe they're saying there's less stress because, you know, just, you know, they like the teacher or because, you know, they paid a lot of money and they feel like they should. It's just placebo. Well, this suggests no. There's an actual neurobiological reason why they're saying they're less stressed, that the, you know, this amygdala, that how it's wired has changed and it's processing emotions differently. 
We also sound increases, <clears throat> excuse me, in several brain regions. So one region is here in the back of the brain called the posterior cingulate, um, here in the side of the brain called the supramarginal gyrus, and down in the hippocampus. And together, these form the default mode network, which I'm not going to talk about at the moment because uh, uh, it's not really relevant to today's talk. But in particular, I want to pay attention to the supramarginal gyrus and the hippocampus. So um, these three regions sort of work together. The hippocampus and the posterior cingulate, these two regions, are the two regions that are primarily negatively impacted by Alzheimer's disease. These are the regions that are you know, just destroyed in Alzheimer's disease. Um, the hippocampus is involved in memory, uh, specifically um, uh, autobiographical memories in, you know, in sort of um, you know, things that have happened in your life. Um, and the supramarginal gyrus is involved in directing attention. So do I pay attention to internal cues or to external cues and where, you know, where exactly am I going to direct attention? Um, versus the posterior cingulate is all about self-related processes. So how is this relevant to me? Um, and it's also involved in daydreaming. And it's important to know that sometimes more gray matter means more activity and sometimes more gray matter means less activity because there's inhibitory neurons. And that's what we think is happening here. Excuse me. Um, because we know that this area gets turned off during meditation and that um, it's also less active in general after people start to meditate. And so we think that the more gray matter is representing you know, re repression of this area. So um, because this area was involved in memory and also because of some other data um, I'm going to show you in a bit, we wondered, well, could we uh, use meditation to help promote cognitive aging. So as we all know, as we get older, you know, our brains are not quite as sharp as we used to be, right? Like I said, we tend to do a little bit more mind wandering and, you know, it takes us a little bit longer to figure things out. And, um, you know, we're just not quite as sharp as we used to be. So we're wondering, could it help? And so um, I told you back that there's that one spot in the front of the brain that is uh, associated with intelligence. And so just I'm gonna come back to that now. So there's many different types of intelligence. One type of intelligence is referred to as crystallized intelligence. And what that is, is just all the facts and figures that you know, like just all the random pieces of information. Fluid intelligence is the ability to take those and to solve problems with it, right? And what's known is that the first type of, of intelligence, crystallized intelligence, that continues to increase with age, right? Just as we get, you know, we just continue to accumulate information over our lifetime. You know, and sometimes as we get older, um, you know, it starts to break down a little bit, but for the most part, you know, continues, you know, with increasing age. Fluid intelligence, on the other hand, it peaks in our 20s and then it's all downhill from there, unfortunately. You know, and what we see is just, you know, like what we know, you know, we get a little bit older and we just get a little bit slower and just not quite as sharp. And it's been very well documented in numerous studies that this goes with age. Um, and so what is exactly is fluid intelligence? So multi, fluid intelligence is multifaceted. And so part of it is sustained attention because in order to solve that problem, you have to be able to keep attention on it and you know, be able to sort of maintain your attention as you're figuring it out. You don't just get bored and you know, say, oh, enough, you know, walk away from it. You need working memory. Working memory is being able to keep multiple things in mind at the same time. You need meta-awareness, metacognition, 
you know, so the ability to sort of step back and think like, okay, how am I approaching this problem is not working. I need to figure out a new approach or, oh yeah, this worked for this other problem. You know, maybe I'll use this approach, right? So there's that sort of thinking has to happen. And then other executive functions such as, um, you know, like, so being fluid and, uh, sorry, so being able, uh, flexible and like, you know, to, you know, not just saying, okay, it has to work this way. It has to work this way. Like, okay, there's, you can do multiple different ways of, of thinking about this problem. And um, as you can see, I've already told you that sustained attention and metacognition are two of the uh, things that we practice when we meditate, right? Because we, you know, our mind starts to wander, we bring it back and we have to be aware of what our mind's being aware of. And so we thought, well, hmm, you know, we know this is a brain region that's involved in fluid intelligence. And uh, this is just to show you this. So these are two other studies that showed, um, you know, that localized where fluid intelligence is in the brain. As you can see, it's exactly the same region that we found in our study. And so we wondered, well, hmm, could meditation, and we know that meditation, um, uh, uh, you know, as enhancing these skills. And the other thing which I forgot to show you before was that, was this, which that um, when we plotted this data, sorry, I, I'm talking about the data in a little bit different order than I usually do. So it's a little bit choppy, sorry about that. So when we plotted this data, what we saw was this. So the red are the controls and the blue are the meditators. And what we see is that it's really well known that the whole front half of our brain shrinks as we get older. And this is why we get a little slower with older age and why it takes us a little, you know, we're not quite as sharp as we used to be. It's because our brain is, is breaking down. And we saw was that the 50 year old meditators had the same amount of gray matter as the 20 year old uh, subjects, suggesting that meditation was preserving this part of the brain. And again, going for exercise analogy, we know that, you know, if you don't use your muscles, they're going to, waste away, similar with our brain. If we don't use it, if we're not engaging it, it's gonna waste away. And it looks like that meditation can help prevent this wasting away, that can actually you know, promote uh, the, this, this area, this function. Um, and this wasn't true of the entire brain, it really was just in these few areas. And you see in the insula, it's not quite as strong in the insula, but it's also helping there as well. So I said, okay, so we know that's preserving that area of the brain, and we know this is the area of the brain that's involved in fluid intelligence, can it actually preserve fluid intelligence with age? So what we did is we repeated the study and this time we gave everybody the standard IQ test and the solid line is the controls. And we got, um, this time we recruited long-term meditators and also people who have been practicing yoga for um, again, 10, 20 years. And we gave all of them fluid intelligence tests and this was people just 40 to 70 years old. And again, so these are the controls, and we can see that in the controls that indeed fluid intelligence decreased with age, but that in the yogis and meditators, although there was some decline, for the most part, it was preserved, and that this was different, right? So that statistically, the yogis and meditators are different than the controls, and that, the, um, and that there's statistically, there's no correlation between age and IQ versus there is with, um, with the controls. So it really does suggest that, yes, it's preserving this area of the brain and it's preserving fluid intelligence. So it really is helping you retain what you've got. Okay. Um, so now, so this was, again, people who've been practicing for many, many years. So the question now was, well, can we help people who start practicing late in life? 
right? Or is it is it too late? So what we did is um, <clears throat> we recruited 120 healthy older adults. So these are people, they were free, um, uh, uh, they were definitely free of dementia. So we, we very carefully ruled out that. And then we got them as healthy as possible. Of course, once you get to be about 60, 65, you know, things are starting to break down a little bit. So definitely there were some people on heart disease and, um, you know, just the normal old age stuff. But no people who had like stroke were ruled out people who you know um you know serious heart disease you know they were ruled out but for you know these are generally healthy older adults 65 to 80 years old um no prior meditation or yoga experience and we randomized them to either um, an eight-week mindfulness program or to brain games and the brain games were crossword puzzles sudoku word jumbles things like this and so it was an eight-week class and they practiced 40 minutes in class and then they were told to go home and practice and we gave them materials to practice with at home. And so they were told to practice every day for 40 minutes. And what we saw was that, and so we did it pre and post, so baseline in eight weeks. And then we also brought them back a year later. And what we saw was that over the short term, both groups improved. But over the next 12 months, the controls went back to baseline and actually went below baseline versus the meditation group continue to improve. And what's really interesting is that the controls, they actually, like 95% of them continue to practice daily or almost daily, their games. Versus the mindfulness group, a lot of people either stop practicing or they cut way back. And so instead of practicing every day, they practice like maybe three to five times a week. Um, but yet there were still these benefits. And so it really does suggest that, yeah, you know, it really can, it's not just preserving what you've got, it's actually enhancing what you've got. Um, we also did a test of sustained attention. And what this was, was sort of, again, sort of a boring task they did for 16 minutes. And again, we showed from pre to post that both groups improved. And again, over the next, and this one we did two years later as well. And what we see is that the controls, they go back um, you know, they kind of sort of maintain it over the first 12 months, but then at two years, you know, again, it's really starting to lose it versus the mindfulness group. Again, again, they they go up even higher at 12 months and at 24 months. Again, so it's, there's, um, you know, continued improvement even after the program ends. Now this test, what it is, it's, it's a 16 minute task. And what we see is that, um, so the lighter, the color is, so this is, is, is baseline. And then this is post, and this is uh, six months, and this is, or sorry, 12 months, and this is um, 24 months. And what we see is that this is performance over the course of the 16 minutes. So all of them, both in the materials and the controls, you start off pretty good, but then over the 16 minutes, because it's kind of a boring task, performance starts to decline, right? And then here, they sort of get a second wind, and they sort of, you know, rally and get a little bit better at the very end. But for the most part, performance is, you know, tanking over the 16 minutes in both groups at baseline. And then what we can see very clearly in the mindfulness group is that at every time point, their ability to maintain performance over the 16 minutes gets better and better and better. Versus here in the controls, it tanks. And then at post, you know, they're kind of overall, like at the beginning, they start higher, but then over the 16 minutes, it still tanks and it doesn't improve. And in fact, at 24 months, they're back almost back to baseline again in terms of their ability to keep them um, focus up. So it really so shows us that it's not that it's this, um, 
that what we're doing is we're basically maintaining, you know, the sustained attention, right? Which makes sense because this is what you do when you meditate, right? Your mind starts to wander, you bring it back. Your mind starts to wander, you bring it back. And they're able to do this successfully for extended periods of time uh, versus with the controls. It's like, okay, that's, this is great. This is interesting. And then boom, and you know, they can't, they can't keep it going. Um, so how are we doing on time? Okay. So we have time for just like one or two quick questions and then we'll take a break. So, um, and I don't know how to do the questions. <laughs> For Dr. Lazar now, um, if you just type in the chat, we'll ask them. Um, but if not, we'll just go straight to the break and do the questions in the final the final 20 minutes. Okay. So we've got one here from Tasneem, and she's asked, what is the difference between active and passive meditation? Right. Um, so like I said, so the passive meditation, in theory, nothing. Right. So the idea is you're just paying attention right? and you're having this open awareness. So as you're walking around, as you're, uh, you know, going about your day, you're going to have sort of a passive, um, uh, you know, mindful awareness. And then the idea is that when you're actually sitting, it's a lot easier to maintain your focus because you're not being distracted by everything around you. Um, and then, you know, I've talked mostly about it in terms of trying to reduce stress and, um, you know, to improve cognition. But a lot of people, of course, meditate for spiritual reasons. And so in order to get into those really deep spiritual states, you really sort of need to do like the formal, you know, meditation where you sit 40 minutes a day in a, you know, um, uh, you know, and or longer, <laughs> you know, and to, and to really do that. Uh, and so that's, I guess, I, I don't know if that's what you mean by static versus um, uh, active, but, um, yeah, that that would be you know that'd be one idea. Is that you can just you can get into a much deeper, much more sustained uh, focus when you're just doing it. Cool. Okay. Um, Sandra has asked, "What does this mean for Alzheimer's disease?" Excellent question. So there's been a few small studies. Um, the biggest study, the best well done study, they took people both with full blown Alzheimer's as well as people with early, like just the first signs of dementia. And what they, and it was a year and a half study. And it wasn't mindfulness. It was, um, they did a, a yoga, a form of yoga. And, um, you know, mantra you know, meditation uh, and, 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 and very gentle yoga. And what they showed is that for the very early, early dementia, they were able to actually reverse the impact on memory, right? That they were actually able to improve people's memory and other cognitive abilities. Once you get into full-blown Alzheimer's, it doesn't seem to have an impact. Um, but if you can catch it early, you can slow it down. It seems like, and again, it was just, it was one study, you know, needs to re-replicate it, needs to be done in larger, needs a lot more needs to be done, but it does seem like potentially, um, and it's really important that, you know, being able to slow it down and, 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 um, because what the idea is with Alzheimer's is that, you know, cause Alzheimer's doesn't kill you. So you can live 10, 20, 30 years with Alzheimer's and you're just getting worse and worse and worse. And so if you can delay the onset of Alzheimer's by a few years, then you die of natural causes or other causes before you get to the really horrible part of Alzheimer's. And so there's a big push now on trying to, you know, slow it down um, and, you know, prevent the onset of full-blown Alzheimer's as long as possible. So, so it's looking promising for that. I mean, I don't know if it can completely cure it, but it can definitely hopefully slow it down a bit. Very interesting. Okay. So 
we've got one here from Jackie, and Jackie asks, "What research is there around the the minimum amount of time for meditation to achieve the best results, and how often would you recommend per week?" Yeah, it's always the question I get. So there isn't really a study to say what's the optimal time, right? Um, we did one study, it's actually more with yoga, <clears throat> um, excuse me, and we randomized people to 40 minutes a day or 10 minutes a day. And it was interesting because I did, I mean, actually there's also a third condition where we told them 40 minutes, three times a week, 10 minutes, three times a week. And what we saw, and it was a small study, what we saw was just that there was a correlation between amount of time and outcome. So the more you practiced, the more, at least for stress, the more stress reduction you had. Um, and it turned out that the people randomized to 40 minutes a week, even though they weren't practicing every day, they had better outcome, if, you know, the ones who actually practiced, um, than the people who practice every day for 10 minutes. Because, you know, 10 minutes a day is only, you know, like say 70 minutes a week. Versus if you practice twice a week, 40 minutes, you know, that's already 80 minutes. You know, so it does seem like it's, at least for stress, it's just a matter of total amount of time. There have been some other studies where they haven't randomized people, but there's been some studies where they've looked at just to see, you know, different patient populations or different um, symptoms other than stress. And it seems in some cases, frequency is more important and other cases, duration is more important. So some of them, it's more important that you practice every day, even if it's only five or 10 minutes a day. And for other conditions, it seems like, no, you need to practice 20, 30, 40 minutes a day, at least a couple times a week. You know, that, that um, and again, it's sort of a subjective thing. It's like the sort of the longer you sit, the sort of the quiet your mind gets and you get better and better at maintaining the attention. Um, and so it's sort of, uh, again, like for sort of like physical exercise, you know, walking 10 minutes a day is great, but you also get benefits from doing a longer workout a couple times a week. So again, it's still too early. Um, and I would say, what can you commit to, right? And so if all you've got is five or 10 minutes a day, that's great. You're gonna get benefits from five or 10 minutes a day. If you can do longer a couple of times a week, great. Do the longer a couple of times a week. Um, you'll get benefits from, benefits from that as okay, well. Okay, great. And now we've got the last question from Romy before the break. Um, Romy asks, have there been any studies on if there may be differences in mindfulness meditation ability between genders? Interesting question. Um, <clears throat> sort of not really. Mostly we've not seen differences in gender officially, but most of the studies have been kind of too small to really tease it apart. Um, uh, and so my sense is also that mindfulness itself, there's probably no difference. What I see and just talking with people, a lot of different people, what you see is that women, uh, I haven't talked too much about the oh, compassion and the, um, there's other practices that are usually taught with this. And women tend to be sort of better at sort of the emotional regulation part of it. And guys are more better at the sort of the cognitive part of it, <laughs> you know, but, but there's no hard evidence on that, right? And definitely, you know, women can benefit from the cognition and the guys benefit emotionally, but it seems like, um, you know that there's a, there's a little bit of a skew that okay, way. Okay, great. Thanks very much, Dr. Lazar. So we'll have a five minute break, and we'll we'll come back at about just after five two or yeah five two, and uh, we'll get started with the second part of the lecture. All right. Okay.
so let's um, just uh, do a little chair yoga, right? So just stretch your arms and uh, just noticing what it feels like to stretch. Ah, take a deep breath. Mm, let it all out. Waking up the body a little bit. All right, here we are for part two. So in part one, we talked about cognition. And now in part two, we're going to talk about pain and fear, right? Which I know uh, many of us as we get older, there's a little bit more pain and fear in our lives for all sorts of reasons. And mindfulness is really great uh, for both of those. And so we're going to talk about both of those now. So I'm going to talk, so again, mindfulness. This is paying attention to the present moment. And I want to draw attention to the very last part, the non-judgmental way. And I talked before about it's trying to be not so judgy. Another word for that is equanimity, right? This idea of balance, of equality between different options. So maybe it's quiet, maybe it's noisy. Can we treat them the same? Maybe it's a beautiful spring day, maybe it's cold and rainy. Can we enjoy and appreciate both of them? Um, in the context, particularly of people, the idea is, you know, if someone's doing something that you don't like, or is giving you a hard time or whatever, um, or is telling you a story, uh, an emotional story, can we listen in this non-reactive way? Can we just hear the story? Can we just be with what's happening in this uh, non-reactive way? But very importantly, it's not indifference, right? A key component of mindfulness is you're open-hearted and caring. What do I mean by that? So, um, you know, if someone starts telling you this sob story about this thing that happened to their family member and you know, you could just be like, oh yeah, you know, poor Sarah, you know, too bad for her, right? So that'd be indifference. You could also be like, oh my God, Sarah, oh my God, I'm so sorry for you. And oh man, and how can, you know, and just like, you know, getting caught up in their story and having just emotionally get um, just huge overreaction to the story, right? And so we're also trying to avoid that. So you don't want to get swept away by you know the emotions that you may be experiencing and so this idea is that you remain open so you care but you do it in a way that you're not just completely overwhelmed and that's really the goal because you know we can't there's many times in our life you know when things happen to us um a classic example for me is you know because tra traffic in boston is horrible right people are always cutting you off and you know driving really crazy in the whole thing and there are numerous times like where you're just driving, do your own thing, and all of a sudden a car will swerve in front of you, right? And of course, you're gonna have this moment of panic and fear, like, oh my God, you know, I, you know, that guy nearly hit me. <laughs> um, and your reaction is to, you know, swear and honk and that whole thing. And so can we not do that, right? Can we say, oh, okay, um, this person nearly cut me off and, you know, nearly crashed into me. And so I have that moment of fear and, and whatnot, but then let it go and say, okay, but he didn't. 
<laughs> and instead of cursing the guy out saying, okay, this guy, you know, clearly is in a rush or is not thinking about other people. And, you know, I hope that he gets home safely and doesn't hurt anybody. Right. So can we, so rather than getting all judgy again and negative about it, can we remain open and caring to this other person and non-reactive? And that's our goal. Right. So can we actually show that it works and how it works? And so I'm going to show you first in the context of pain. So what we did here, oh, so first we need to know a little bit about pain. There's two components to pain. Um, one component of pain is the actual physical sensation. So the stabbing, burning, tingling, pulsing uh, component of it. And then there's emotional reaction to it. Ow, it hurts. I don't like it. Make it stop. And we know is that they are distinct, both behaviorally and in the brain. What do I mean by that? We'll start with the brain. What we know is that the noxious uh, stimulus comes in and goes up the spinal cord into the brain. And then this blue network, this is sensory cortex. This is involved in evaluating the actual sensation that you're feeling. So the burning, stabbing, tingling, right? It's evaluating all that and how intense it is, this whole bit. And then this brown network is evaluating the, oh, I don't like it. This is unpleasant. How do I make it stop, right? And we, so we see in, there, in those two networks are independent of each other. They work independently. And very importantly, we also know this because, so for instance, uh, based on genetics, but also how we're raised and um, you know experiences we've had in our life will influence it. So I know that if I, you know, if we're all in the same room and I went around and I punched each and every one of you in exactly the same way with the exact same amount of force and asked you to rate it on a scale of one to 10 in terms of the intensity of what you're feeling and also a scale of one to 10 on terms of the unpleasantness and the, you know, ouchiness of it, that in terms of the intensity on a scale of one to 10, you'd all be more or less the same, right? So if I, you know, it was about a five, you know, y'all say, okay, yeah, on a scale of one to 10, that's about a five in terms of the tingling and that whole thing. But in terms of the, um, you know, unpleasantness and the, you know, I don't like it, you'd be all over the place. You know, so someone who, you know, worked with their body and did a lot of, you know, physical labor and, you know, sort of, you know, got banged around a lot, you know, they might rated on like a one or two, you know, because they've been really clobbered sometime, right? And then, you know, have experienced really intense pain versus someone who doesn't experience a lot of pain or, um, you know, has been taught through childhood or through other experiences, you know, that they're, um, you know, they're a little more sensitive to pain for whatever reason, you know, that exact same hit might be like, say an eight or nine in terms of the unpleasantness, like, oh, that really hurt. You know, why'd you do that to me? And so, so again, so they're very, very different. Um, and so we can separate them in the brain. So the other thing that's really interesting is in terms of how pain regulation works. So there's a lot of different ways that can, we can regulate pain. So one is through attention and distraction, right? So if I, uh, like when you go to a, a doctor's office and they have to give you a shot, let's times they'll say, oh, look over there. And when you're not looking, they would jab you so that you're not paying attention. They can also modify expectation and say, oh, this isn't going to hurt a bit. Oh, it's just going to be a little, little pinch, you know, no big deal. Um, or I can use placebo. 
right? They're gonna say, oh, there's something in this cream and I'm gonna put this cream on you and it's gonna numb the pain. And in all three of these cases, uh, you know, when they work, it's interesting is that they all look the same in the brain. What happens is that this brown network, which is the, I don't like it, make it stop, shuts off the blue network. So what happens is that you, you know, you literally don't feel it. It just shuts down the system so that signal comes in and then it just stops and it doesn't go up and get processed. So you literally don't feel the pain because it's just not going to those parts of the brain that figure out, okay, what's the intensity? And so um, and it's interesting because all three of them, although they seem very different, they're all working the same way. So our question was, what about mindfulness? How does mindfulness work? So what we did was um, we put people on the MRI scanner and we applied a very mild electric shock to their uh, hand. And we had them go in, we, again, we did long-term meditators and controls and we did it both in a normal state and in a mindful state. And for the controls, like five minutes before they went to the scanner, we explained to them what mindfulness was and you know, they practiced it once you know, real quick. And then we put them in the scanner. And then we also at the, they would do this for 40 seconds where intermittently during the 40 seconds they get zapped. So they didn't know when they were going to get zapped. And then uh, they had them rate both the intensity and the unpleasantness. And what we saw was basically the exact opposite of what we saw with placebo and attention and um, uh, uh, expectation. So we see here, here's the mindfulness practitioners, here's the controls, here's the front of the brain, the I don't like it, make it stop. In the controls, during the mindfulness, it actually went up versus in the meditators, this region went down and it got completely turned off, right? So the I don't like it, make it stop, got turned off. And back in the sensory part of the brain, the part that's actually experiencing it, we see a really nice increase in the mindfulness practitioners and a decrease in the controls. So what we're seeing is in the controls that basically mindfulness is working the same way as all these other forms of pain control, right? That they're, um, you know, they're trying to stop it. But with the long-term meditation practitioners, we're seeing the complete opposite. And at first, it was a little bit of a head scratcher. But then we started thinking about the, the, um, the instructions for mindfulness. What are the instructions for mindfulness? Pay attention to present moment sensory experience in a non-judgmental way. And so what we're seeing is that compared to baseline, that yes, they're paying more attention to the sensory experience and they're doing it in this non-judgmental way. They've turned off the, I don't like it, make it stop. And they're just paying attention to the buzzing, tingling, burning sensation, right? And then when we ask them to rate both the intensity and the unpleasantness, what we see is that for the mindfulness practitioners, basically the intensity is not changing but we get a big decrease in the unpleasantness, right? So this is the equanimity, right? So they're just experiencing it in this non-judgmental way. Um, this is the work of some other people and they show that actually the, they actually showed that the, the connections between these two parts of the brain got turned off uh, in the meditators compared to the controls. And that also that the amount of experience was related to this. So the more they practiced, the more years of practice they had, the more those two regions were not talking to each other. So really it's, it's separating the two completely so that you can, you can just experience it and emotionally, physically, you can experience it emotionally and that those two are completely independent of each other now. So this is a quote from Alan Watts. In a certain sense, Zen is feeling life instead of feeling something about life. 
And that's really what we're trying to get at. This idea that, um, you know, you can, you feel in your life, right? You're actually experiencing it rather than just, you know, having a brief moment experience and then judging and elaborating and thinking about what you're going to think about it, feel about it. Another quote, life is painful, suffering is optional, right? And this is really key because, you know, oftentimes we can't avoid pain, especially as we get older. You know, there's all sorts of aches and pains that start creeping up as we get older and we cannot get a, a, avoid it. You know, sometimes we can, you know, get a surgery or, you know, do something, you know, to fix it, but sometimes not. Sometimes, you know, there's just chronic pain. Um, and so can we live with it without all the, you know, the thoughts of, oh my God, this is horrible and no poor me and oh, what can I do? And, you know, we need to make the pain stop. You know, can you actually live with the pain in a completely different way? And there's been several studies showing with people with chronic pain that you really can shift how you experience the pain. All right, so now we're gonna switch over to fear. Um, and so, and anxiety. So we know that mindfulness involves this present moment of attention, right, in this non-judging uh, way. We also know that mindfulness interventions are extremely effective for reducing symptoms of anxiety. So general anxiety, which is just sort of constant worry, um, social anxiety, which is, is, you know, like fear of speaking or, you know, fear of being, you know, meeting new people, phobias, and also PTSD, post-traumatic stress. Um, it's highly effective for all of these, for reducing the anxiety of them. One of the ways that these are treated in normal Western therapy is something called exposure therapy. So for instance, say you had a phobia of spiders, right? And you just, you freaked out about spiders. The way exposure therapy would work would be first, you would just talk about spiders with your therapist, and then they might bring in some drawings. Maybe initially there might just be some very simple line drawings like cartoons of spiders. And then they might actually start bringing in some, you know, high definition pictures of spiders to sort of, and so you gradually increase your exposure. Right, and then they actually might bring in a spider like in a cage of some sort, so you can sort of see it, a black spider, but you know, absolutely no contact with it. And then in the end, you actually, you know, the spider actually crawls on you. And this takes many, many months. But this idea is, is this gradual um, exposure to increasingly, um, uh, the, where this fearful stimulus is, and increasing levels of it. Um, same with flying, you know, you might go into a simulator at first. And then you might just go up for like a minute or two, and then you go up for longer and longer times in the flight. And the idea is that what they know with exposure therapy is that if you sort of just shut down, it doesn't work. You really need to let yourself be open and experience it, right? And so we hypothesize that mindfulness might provide an optimal condition for exposure because this is basically what mindfulness is, is that you're just exposing yourself to the first of that uh, stimuli. And so can you overcome the fear more effectively by using mindfulness? So the question was, well, how does this work? And can we show it in the brain? And so what we did was a two-day fear conditioning protocol. And I'm going to go through all that uh, in a few minutes about what exactly that is. Uh, uh, basically, it, it's um, just a short one. Is it's, it's a, You see a uh, light and you get shocked sometimes to certain lights. And then people were randomized to either this eight-week mindfulness course or to exercise because we know exercise is highly effective for reducing stress and for promoting emotion regulation. And then we repeated this two-day fear conditioning protocol on the scanner again. 
Importantly, all the subjects were told that there was no control group, that both the mindfulness and the exercise were effective, and it's true. Um, and they, they signed up for stress reduction, and we know exercise is excellent for reducing stress. Um, and so, you know, there wasn't any expectation bias then that, okay, well, I'm in the controls, I'm not going to get, you know, you know, they really believe that they're going to get better, and, and you know, they did. Um, the exercise group, in addition to being told to exercise every day for 40 minutes, they also, in their class, they got information about diet and sleep hygiene, positive attitude and humor. So it was a very comprehensive program. Um, both practice groups were told to practice 40 minutes per day at home. And both groups had a half day retreat in the sixth week. And what this is, I didn't mention it before. Uh, in the MBSR program, a standard part of this program is in the sixth week, you actually spend one day meditating, right? And what it is, is you practice for 40 minutes and then you go for a walk. But the idea is that even when you're walking, you're just being mindful of the trees and the sunshine, right? And you come back and you formal sitting meditation again. And then they might do some yoga for 40 minutes. And so they alternate throughout the day. Um, you know, at lunchtime, they stop and they eat mindfully. Um, and so in the control group, what they did is they exercised and then they got some more information about, you know, humor and diet and these sorts of things. Uh, they had a very nutritious lunch that was brought in. They exercised a bit more and then gave them a chair massage. So now um, both groups were highly effective for reducing stress, right? And so we knew that, uh, um, you know, they were effect both similar for that. What we saw was that there was a questionnaire about um, how well you regulate your emotions and also your anxiety levels. And when we see the controls, there was no change on any of these measures. But for the meditators, there was a nice decrease in both of them, suggesting that it is doing something beyond just stress, right? So exercise is good for stress, but the mindfulness is giving you something a little extra. Also, we found in terms of um, amount of home practice, that again, similar to what I said before, is that just the total amount of practice was related to the amount of change in stress. So the more people practice, the more stress reduction they had. Um, I should pause here to say that, you know, people are told to practice every day 40 minutes, but we know, you know, every study that's ever been done. Some people actually practice 40 minutes every day. Some people practice 40 minutes most days, say five, six days a week. Some people can only do 10 minutes a day or 20 minutes a day. Um, some people only practice two or three times a week. And so, you know, and that's, you know, it is what it is, right? And so what we see though, is that again, the more you practice, the more you benefit, both in terms of stress and also again, the self-reported emotion regulation. Uh, you know, both of them were, were correlated with, with home practice. Um, all right, so now what about the sphere conditioning? So what this was, uh, it's sort of a variation of good old Pavlov's dogs, right? So with Pavlov's dogs, what he did was they learned that um, every time the bell rang, they're going to get fed. And so after a while, if you just rang the bell, they would salivate, right? And so then... Uh, over the years, as people want to study this more, they sort of, food is sort of hard to, because the animals aren't hungry and you know, they don't respond to bells as much, the whole thing. So what they've done is they switch it over to fear conditioning. <laughs> and so what this is, is um, uh, again, a mild shock, similar to what we did in the last study, but this time it's paired with different colored lights. And the way it works is this, is that there's three different colored lights and two of the lights they, in this case, the yellow and the red lights, they get a mild electric shock, 
but when the blue light comes on, they don't get shocked. And I should also say that in this point, um, they don't get shocked every time. It's only about a third of the time. So sometimes they see the red light and they get shocked. Sometimes they see the red light and they don't get shocked, but they know that, but they learn pretty quickly that red means I'm gonna get shocked or there's a good chance I'm gonna get shocked when I see red light. Um, there's two other parts to this. Cause I said, again, this is a two day protocol. So I'm gonna talk more about those other two parts in a little bit, but we're gonna start off here just with the conditioning, just the learning. And what we see here is this. Um, and so I'm gonna talk you through it. It's a little bit of a complicated slide. So here are the controls. So here is the response to the red and yellow light. Here's the response to the blue light. And what we see is that from at baseline, they have a very robust, they see those red lights, they know they're gonna get shocked. So they have a very robust, uh, this has to do with skin conductance. You know, they're, they're, you know they tense up and tighten up and then it's like they know, oh my God, I might get shocked. At post, what we see is that they still have a reaction relative to the blue line, right? So they're not, you know, they are responding to getting shocked, but it's nowhere near as big as it was at baseline, right? That, that you know, they're kind of, um, they're not responding as much. Meanwhile, within the SR group, we see there's no difference between pre and post. And again, this is a little bit of a head scratcher, but then again, we thought about it in terms of what we saw of the pain. And we realized, okay, this, this is equanimity. We're seeing this in just eight weeks. So what's happening here is that the controls, they know they're gonna get shocked. So what are they doing? I don't like it, make it stop. So we think what's happening is that they're turning off that pain network. And so they're just not feeling it, right? They're shutting down. Versus the mindfulness group, they're just paying attention to it and they're not shutting down. And so they're having the same reaction at base, at, sorry, at pulse as they do at baseline. So this is the equanimity, right? So they're, it's, they're getting shocked. They know they're gonna get shocked and they're okay with it. And you can say, okay, well, how do you know that? So what we see is that this, the more pre and post look the same, the more stress reduction people report, right? And the more that they do this, the less stress reduction people report. Furthermore, we looked at the connections between the amygdala, the fear part of the brain and the front of the brain. And again, what we saw was that, again, the more pre and post look the same, the, um, the stronger this connection became. And sort of, uh, and this has to do with the physical connection. And so again, there's like, there's a, sometimes it means more activity, sometimes, in, sometimes more means more activity, sometimes more means less activity. And in this case, we think it has to do with stronger connections means better control. And in this case, or lack of control, right? Or that being able to disconnect the two. Um, and so again, so we see this really strong correlation between the two, uh, between this, the remodeling of the brain and the reduction in stress and the, the uh, non-reactivity to the stimulus. Okay, now what about day two? All right, so what happens is, so this happens first. So they learned the red and yellow light means that they're gonna get shocked. Blue means they're safe. Then what happens is that we show them just the yellow light and the blue light, but they, and we don't shock them. So now they learn that, okay, yellow light also means I'm safe, but red light, they have no new information. So they assume that red light still means I'm gonna get shocked. They then go home and bring them back the next day. And we show them all three lights again, but this time we don't shock them. And the question is, how do they respond, right? 
So do they remember that yellow means that they are not gonna get shocked or do they still respond like they're gonna get shocked? And what happens with the red, right? And so um, we're not gonna go into all the different reactions so much per se, but more sort of how the brain was responding, right? And so what we saw was that when we looked across the entire brain, what was different between the mindfulness practitioners and the controls was this area here, the supermarginal gyrus. And um, I told you back, way back at the beginning of the last talk, was that over the course of the eight weeks, oops, sorry, that uh, this was one of the brain regions that grew in just eight weeks. And what we're seeing here is that it becomes more active in the mindfulness practitioners relative to the controls from pre to post, right? So both of them had an increase, but the increase is much bigger in the mindfulness practitioners than the controls. And again, this is the part of the brain that's involved in directing attention. So who do I pay attention externally or internally? And what do I pay attention to? What do I pay attention to? So the question then was, well, what is it paying attention to? Um, oh, sorry. So we also found that activity here correlated with amount of practice. So again, the more you practice, the more activity you had here. So this is, you know, a, a memory test, right? And I told you the hippocampus is all about memory. And because you have to remember that, okay, red and yellow means I'm going to get shocked. Blue means I'm safe. But then yellow also means I'm safe. You know, so all this is memory. And so the question is, what are you paying attention to and what are you remembering? So what's, which memories are you paying attention to? Are you paying attention to the I'm getting shocked memory or the I'm not getting shocked memory? And we know that, um, so you have the conditioning and then the extinction. Those extinguished memories must be remembered. And we know from a lot of other studies with other people that the hippocampus is crucial for remembering which, which type of shock, what the light means. Like, does the light mean I'm going to get shocked or does the light mean I'm not going to get shocked, right? We have to use the hippocampus for that. And we also know that, for instance, people with anxiety disorders, they are really bad at it. Like, they, they get confused and they forget if it means they're going to get shocked or not going to get shocked, right? Um, and so they tend to have poor retrieval. So what we saw was that the memory that the meditators were much better at remembering, correctly remembering that yellow meant I'm not going to get shocked and red meant I wasn't going to get shocked, right? Because back here, right? They're much better at distinguishing these. So they're remembering that yellow meant, okay, no, yellow means I'm no longer get shocked. Red means I'm still going to get shocked and blue never meant I was going to get shocked. So they were better able to remember that. Um, and that, that was, so the, you know, there was also an increase in the controls, but there was a much bigger increase in the meditators and there was a group difference there. And then in terms of the brain, <clears throat> excuse me. So we said, okay, so who, so this is a memory test. So who is the hippocampus talking to, right? So we knew the hippocampus activity was changing, but the question was where, what memory was it remembering? And what we saw in the meditators was that there was increased connectivity between the hippocampus and this area. What is that area? That is sensory cortex. And that is precisely where the hand is represented in sensory cortex. 
So they were paying attention to the actual hand area compared to the controls. Meanwhile, they're paying less attention to this area. There's less connections with this area. And this is the area of visual cortex. And so what we see is that, um, hold on. And also this area, this decrease here was correlated with decreases in anxiety. So the less you saw, paid attention here, the less anxiety you had. And so the model is that, um, and we know that the supermarginal gyrus is directing attention of the hippocampus, right? And so what we see is that with mindfulness is that we're better engaging the supermarginal gyrus and this increased engagement is directing attention differently. So now instead of paying attention to the lights, you're just paying attention to the actual hand and you're remembering what was that sensory experience I had, right? And so it's not so much the lights, it's the actual sensory experience. And we know that this is related to the decrease in stress and anxiety. And so um, what we're seeing from this is that mindfulness of the body is key both for pain and fear coping, right? So it's both, it's, it's helping both of them. And the way it's working is that it's, um, you know, the, sorry, sorry, I should say that the way mindfulness is helping is through mindfulness of the body, right? So just paying attention to your actual sensory experience rather than to all the cognitive elaborations around it that's the key to how mindfulness is working, right? Is that you're paying attention to your actual sensory experience. And so again, this shift from thinking about and defending against threat to experiencing it openly and non-judgmentally, this is the key, right? So that you're just experiencing life as it is without trying to control it. So we have a couple of uh, quotes here. So one, this is from a, um, a movie with Will Smith in it called After Earth. And his character says, do not misunderstand me. Danger is very real, but fear is a choice, right? And this is really clear because again, just like the pain, there's all sorts of things happening in our life, you know, that are threats, you know, coronavirus, uh, you know, predatory, you know, scams, um, you know, fear of falling, fear of, you know, being physically attacked, these sorts of things. You know, there's a very real dangers, you know, and so we can go choose to go about our life fearing it, or we can say, okay, this might happen. It might not, you know, and when it happens, I'll just be open to it and deal with it the best I can. Right. And this is the idea is that, that we try to drop the fear and we just experience what we're actually experiencing. And um, another quote here. So this is from Joseph Goldstein, who's a very accomplished uh, meditation practitioner and teacher. Uh, he says, anything can happen at any time. We can go along just fine in our lives and suddenly there is an accident or an illness, coronavirus, or some sort of dramatic change in the condition of the world. Some people may hear anything can happen anytime and think, oh my God, that's depressing. But rightly understood, it's not depressing at all. It's freeing because understanding this, we are not living in delusion. The mind relaxes, lets go of fear, and is much more open because we acknowledge the truth of change rather than deny it, right? And so again, this is exactly what we're trying to do. We're trying to say, okay, and live in the moment. And yes, something horrible may happen, 
but something really wonderful may happen, right? And that horrible thing that you think might happen may never happen. So can we let go of the fear, right? Fear is always based on the future of what might happen. We don't know what might happen, you know? And so, and certainly we can make plans, but can we make plans in a sort of a thoughtful way as opposed to a fear-based way, right? So what do I mean by that? So, um, you know, we might get to a car accident. You know, every time we get in a car, there's a chance we could get into a car accident. So what do we do? We put on the seatbelts, right? Because we know that if we get, if we get into an accident, the seatbelt is more likely to uh, keep us safe, right? So do we experience intense fear every time we get in the car? And do we put on the seatbelts? Oh my God, I might get into an accident? No, right? We're just like, okay, you know, it's a safety precaution. So I'm just going to do this just in case, because you never know someone might hit me, right? And we do it without a lot of fear. So similarly with other aspects of our lives in the context of coronavirus, you know, we know if we wear a mask and we keep socially distanced, that it's extremely unlikely, you know, we follow all the rules, it's extremely unlikely we'll get coronavirus. So can we just put on a mask and keep socially distanced, you know, but then enjoy whatever's we're doing rather than going around you know, looking at everyone, judging everyone who's, you know, getting a little too close to you or, you know, whatever, you know, can we just say, okay, and just, um, you know, not be consumed by fear about it, but just follow the safety precautions and continue living life. Um, and that's really what it's all about is just recognizing that there are threats, dealing with them to the extent that we can, and then letting go of the fear. And so uh, that took a little less time than expected. So uh, that's actually all I've got. So we have a nice, good 30 minutes for questions and answers now. So thank you. So the first question is from Alina. And Alina asks, would you recommend any artistic practices that can bring, a, bring about a meditative state? Like things like mandala drawing or coloring, could these be considered in the same light as meditation? Yes. Um, so yes and no. <clears throat> uh, so it's not so much what you do, it's how you do it, right? So again, this idea is that you can be mindful anytime, anywhere. So while doing art, you could be doing art while, you know, listening to music or listening to the news, um, or, uh, you know, you might be thinking about something and lost in thought as you're creating the art. Or you could do it very mindfully, right? And just really being with the, the colors and the, you know, seeing what comes out of you as you as you draw or whatnot. So, so they could be done either way. Um, both mindfulness, art, playing music, even exercise, they're all flow states. Um, and, and flow is definitely a very beneficial state, but mindfulness is a little bit different. Um, especially again, when we talk about like spiritual transformation and these sort of, um, um, you know, these other things. And so, so the art, like I said, it can be mindful, but the attention tends to be externally on the art that you're producing versus the ideas with mindfulness. What happens is you're paying attention to yourself. And I didn't get into this, but um, 
your mind starts to wander. And initially you're just like, okay, my mind keeps wandering, my mind keeps wandering. But with time, you start getting curious and like, well, why does my mind keep going there? And you start to notice habits of your mind. Um, you also start to, as you really start paying attention to what's going on in your life, you start to notice like all your bad habits. You start noticing, um, you know, that, oh, these are sorts of things that cause me fear. Uh, this is how I respond to negative things. And that then helps shift those, right? And that doesn't happen with art. So I think art and meditation are both good for just sort of general stress reduction and sort of clearing your mind. But in terms of those, the metacognitive awareness and the, um, about yourself, that really requires a meditation because you're really, you're really starting to see and learn about your mind as opposed to the art. Very interesting. Okay, so the next question is from uh, Helen, and Helen asks, are there any studies considering the possible use of mindfulness with extreme anger management? Uh, uh, yes and no. I don't know that, so I don't follow all the clinical literature. I don't know that anyone's done explicitly anger management, but it's definitely, um, it is highly effective for anger. And so often that's a component of depression. Um, and it's very, very, very good for depression as well. Um, I would say, so mindfulness comes from the Buddhist tradition. And in Buddhism, there's two main practices. One is mindfulness and one is compassion. And recently, I haven't done research on it, but there's another program that's very much like MBSR, but it's compassion-based and specifically self-compassion-based. Uh, the idea is that often people with anger, they're angry at the world, but they're also angry at themselves. And so mindfulness definitely helps because it helps you see your triggers and it helps you catch yourself. Like, so you start getting angry and then sometimes you can then catch yourself before you start full blown anger. You can sort of like, okay, I'm starting to get angry. You know, I'm starting to notice my arms getting clenched up and you can sort of catch yourself before you explode. Um, so definitely mindfulness can help there. But then the self-compassion seems to really get at it and transform it in a really beautiful way. And just because the idea of being, again, because we tend to judge ourselves so harshly. And so just learning to not judge ourselves so much and to give ourselves a little compassion, a little understanding, you know, a little, little self-love. Um, it really, it really is really fantastic for that. So um, mindfulness, yes, self-compassion even more. And have you got any practical advice for somebody that wants to start developing a more compassionate relationship with themselves? Like, is there any way they, they can combine that with a mindfulness practice? Oh, yeah, definitely. So there's actually a program, an eight-week program called Mindful Self-Compassion. And the idea is, um, I don't know all the details. I think the first few weeks is mostly focused on the mindfulness. So again, so breath awareness, the body scans, and really developing the strength of the self-awareness. Um, and there's a little bit of self-compassion sprinkled in, but then increasingly more and more self-compassion. Uh, this idea being that, um, you know, you sort of need to strengthen, you need both skills, <laughs> you know, and so you need a little bit of mindfulness before you bring the self-compassion in so that you can use the mindfulness to help on, you know, to, to be more effective with the self-compassion. Really interesting. Is that from Kristen Neff by any chance? Yes. Kristen Neff and Chris Germer. And if you go, you can go online, if you just look up mindful self-compassion, they have dozens of of um recordings of of, of uh, guided recordings for self-compassion you know, some are just two or three minutes some are 20 30 40 minutes 
again, a couple different flavors of them. So yeah, highly recommend it. Brilliant. Okay. Um, the next question is from Chris. Chris asks, are there any studies that compare the MRI scans of monk brains with normal people's brains? Yes. Um, that's the work primarily of a guy named Richie Davidson. He's the, you've probably seen pictures of the monk with the electrodes all over his brain. That same group, because uh, he just he had a relationship with Dalai Lama, and so the Dalai Lama just sends him monks, <laughs> <laughs> and so it's really great. And so what you see, yeah, yeah, it's amazing. So sort of um, what you see is that again, it's sort of like exercise, and so we can sort of think of them as like the Olympic athletes of, of meditation, right, of, of mind control, and so. Uh, sort of a similar pattern, but more so, right? That you see with like with the eight weeks and then the like the long term practitioners that I use. You know, like you see those sorts of things, but even stronger, more well developed, as well as some additional as well, um, which again makes sense. Yeah. So. Very interesting. Okay, so next question is from Charles. In the studies on mindfulness in the brain, was there a distinction according to the sitting, yoga, and body scan meditation practices? Right, great question. So they're all taught together over the eight weeks. And so we can't, at least in the brain studies, we can't really distinguish them. There have been studies not with imaging where they've done just yoga or just sitting. And, and also there's like two different types of sitting. So I told you there's like the, um, the body scan versus the sort of the more open awareness type of meditation. And they have shown that there are slight differences between it. Again, I think it's like running versus swimming sort of thing, that you are going to get slight differences between them. Um, but overall, no. Again, they're all good for, for stress reduction. And talking with people, what I see is – you know, like some people love yoga, some people hate yoga. Some people really love the body scan, some people, you know, gives them the heated GBs. And so again, I think it's one of those things where you need to figure out what works for you, mm -hmm. right? And so, and if you like all of them, great. And just sort of see for yourself, okay. Like there's some people who they, they know like, okay, some days I need yoga, like I'm feeling restless, I just need the yoga to sort of settle down a little bit. Other days, and maybe like, yeah, I'm feeling really clear and fo focused and moving is going to be too much. It's going to, you know, it's going to disturb my mind. I want to just sit and meditate because, you know, I'm already settled down. And so, you know, the meditation will help me to get clearer. So, so I would say, you know, play with it, see what, what works for you. Cool. And are there any, uh, any specific instances where meditation is sort of not recommended, where people would be advised not to meditate? Yes, most definitely. Great question. So people with really severe PTSD, it's not that they shouldn't, but they need to go in and carefully, right? So what do I mean by this? So what happens sometimes with meditation, well, actually what happens fairly regularly with meditation is that old memories suddenly get de-repressed. So as an example, back when I first started meditating, I was sitting there meditating and all of a sudden this memory from when I was in fourth grade came up. So when I was in fourth grade, I got in a fight with another girl on the playground and we got sent to the principal's office and I was mortified. I am a good girl. I'm not the kind of girl that gets sent to the principal's office. Oh my God. What was I doing in the principal's office? Oh my God. I, you know, I thought I was going to die. Right. 
But I was like a girl. I was not the kind of girl that gets into the principal's office. <laughs> I was like a student. Nothing happened. You know, they just said, you know, don't fight again. Right. And that's, and then I, that was it. You know, nothing was ever said again. I totally repressed that memory. Right. Then 25 years later, you know, 20 years later, whatever it was, I'm sitting there meditating. Also, I'm back in this office. My face is bright red. I'm just, oh my God, oh my God. But then, of course, I could laugh at it, right? Because nothing had ever happened. And it was a one time, you know, it was no big deal. But at the time, it was, oh my God, my life is ending. And so that memory got repressed and then it got de repressed, right? So now that's sort of a, okay, no big deal. But now imagine you've been sexually assaulted, you've been in a combat situation where you've nearly died, you know, something like that. And you're sitting and meditating, trying to get calm, and all of a sudden, boom, you're back there, right? So you, you know, you're gonna get re-triggered, you can get re-traumatized. So you just need to be aware that that can happen, and to be prepared for it. So you know that that can happen. Also, um, and this gets a little bit of the meditation versus the yoga. Sorry, I'm talking fast. I'm gonna slow down. Um, one thing that's been noticed is that that old memory de-repression is much more likely to happen with meditation than with yoga. So often with people with trauma, it's recommended that you start with yoga and that that really sort of helps build a mindfulness skill. And then, you know, so you have some of the mindfulness and the compassion and the, the, you know, some of those skills, and then you slowly move into the meditation, you know, just a few minutes a day at first. Um, also very importantly to work closely with a mental health professional so that, when that memory comes up, you know, you're ready to deal with it and to work with them skillfully. Um, the other two groups that should be careful are people with schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, because there is also a possibility of something called depersonalization disorder or basically psychosis. Um, typically what I've seen is that tends to be happens with people who practice a lot. There's some people who say, okay, 30 minutes a day is good. I'm going to practice for three hours. And they just sit down and they start practicing for three hours and they sort of force themselves to meditate. Um, and that can induce a psychosis. And it's much more likely if you have, you know, a history of schizophrenia or bipolar disorder um, or a family history of those things. So, so again, not that you can't meditate, but just proceed with great caution. Interesting. It reminds me of, uh, I can't remember which Irvin Yalom book it is, but basically a character in that um, goes away to a meditation retreat for in India for I think it's a couple of months and he comes back and he has depersonalization and he completely loses all boundaries between himself and the world around him and he just he's like sort of lost in space you know that yeah it happens it's real yeah. it's very very real but again it tends to be the people who they're not ready and they go and they sit for extended periods of time so you can I mean the monks sit for many hours a day but they usually, they've actually built up to it and they're working with a teacher. And again, this is really important to work with a teacher because the teacher will say, no, don't go sit. You're not ready to sit for three hours a day, right? And also as, so again, things are going to come up you're gonna, and they're going to tell you how to do it differently. So, so definitely, you know, if you are interested in sitting for a longer period of time, you got to work with a teacher. Makes sense. Okay. Um, so you contribute to uh, a journal or you have contributed to a journal on meditation and psychotherapy. Is that, is that right? A book. Yeah. A book. Okay, so a lot of our audience would be psychotherapists or counselors. So I was just, I'm just curious, you know, have you got any advice for best practices for working with meditation and psychotherapy? Like, should, should therapists? <laughs> I think I think there's a ghost in my kitchen. Oh my god! 
Um, okay, sorry about that. Um, any advice on best practices for people working with meditation and psychotherapy? Right, so I'm not a therapist, right? So uh, take everything with a grain of salt. Uh, and the book is great. And uh, uh, again, Chris Skirmer is, is one of the authors or one of the editors. And um, uh, and there's a, since then, there's been a bunch of different books out there. So there's definitely a lot of, of guidance out there. Um, I think, again, it's one of those things where, um, you know, proceed slowly and carefully. And I know a lot of, some people actually will do a brief meditation with the person in the office. Um, and the idea is, you know, to help build that skill of mindfulness so that then as you're working with them, whatever their issue is, can they bring some mindfulness to it? If you have the meta-awareness, is very, very helpful. Um, you know, to sort of say, hold on, okay, you know, can we see this thought pattern here? Um, but I also know sometimes because there's a therapist and there's a meditation teacher, they have different roles. And, um, so I know some therapists also say, okay, no, go to the meditation center, learn how to meditate, but then we're going to bring that skill of mindfulness here into the, into the, into the therapy room. So different, different therapists do it different ways. And again, I don't know enough because I'm not a therapist. I don't want to say much more than that. Cool. Um, in terms of athletics and sports and these sort of high performance fields, um, could you tell us about any of the interesting research going on there? I, I imagine there's a lot of positive links. Yeah, I don't know about actual. There's been a couple of studies, but more has just been um, some really interesting examples, just real life examples. So this guy, his name is George Mumford, and he's the one who started working with elite athletes including like within basketball, like Kobe Bryant and um, um, uh, oh, some of the other big name basketball players. And he started teaching them these skills and, you know, dramatic improvements. And then supposedly a couple of years ago in the U.S., you know, there's basketball, baseball, football, and hockey. And supposedly the team that won that particular year, all four of the big, you know, the big, like the World Series and the um, yeah, Super Bowl and stuff like that, that the team that won, like everyone on the team had was practicing meditation. And so, you know, who knows, right? And so, but, um, and I guess there was, I think there was one scientific study with um, rowing and they showed that the, um, you know, that the herb times went way, got way, way better. Because again, a lot of it was like mindful breathing. Um, and the idea being, so again, lots of times when we exercise, we sort of zone out. Like we're not, you know, our mind gets clear because we're just, our mind just goes blank. And the idea is, okay, well, rather than that, can we bring it into and breathe mindfully, right? And move our body, really being aware of how we're moving our body. Um, and then in terms of the big professional sports, a lot of it is, has to do with um, performance anxiety. Okay. Right? So even if you screw up and, you know, the ball goes through your legs or you miss the ball or, you know, you make that shot and it doesn't quite go in the basket, you know, don't beat yourself up. And can you recover from that? It's like, okay, I missed. Okay. So rather than, again, so the awareness of, oh, dang, I missed, but then let it go. Um, you know, don't beat yourself up. And just, okay, I'm gonna, let's get, let's, where's the ball now? Let's go get the ball now. So that's the idea that that you know bringing it into the emotion regulation component of it. It makes sense. Like I've I've heard, okay. I, I think it was American football team, but in the past, this player would come in at halftime, and the coach would like spend like thirty minutes like shouting at them and like trying to like motivate them and stuff. And then now, what they do is they come in and they have like a guided meditation, and they mm -hmm. go back out refreshed and and ready to go again. 
Um, yeah. The next question is from uh, Tansim, and Tansim asks, what is the difference when we take people through a visualization exercise that uses all their senses, whether that includes mm -hmm. forgiveness or gratitude? Like, Does this alter brain waves in the same way as standard meditation does? Um, I don't know if it's the same way, but definitely it will. Again, it's sort of like running versus swimming. So, um, and certainly the, the senses, that's exactly what, yeah, that's going to be the same, you know, because again, it's this present moment sensor experience. Then adding the gratitude or whatnot, that's really wonderful. Because again, that's a big component of most of the Eastern meditation traditions is, you know, gratitude, um, forgiveness, um, generosity, all these sorts of things. So again, it's going to be, you know, like, you know, football or cricket or whatever. There's going to be some extra skills you're going to learn there. Um, and definitely they're going to, you know, it's, it should say, it's not like meditation is the only thing that changes your brain. I'm talking fast. Sorry. It's okay. Right. So one of the first studies was, was with juggling, right? So they took people who had never juggled before. They scanned them. They taught them how to juggle. They scanned them again three months later. And they showed that the part of the brain involved in detecting visual motion changed, right? In just three months. That was actually the, the, what got me to do my study. I was they like, wow, three months. What about these people who've been practicing for 20 years, right? Um, since then, they've done other studies. Actually, one of the longest, biggest one was uh, the London taxi drivers. Mm. Because the London taxi drivers, they have to memorize the map of London. And so what they showed is that they had you know, the hacks who were like just starting, like they're, you know, to train versus who've been there for a couple of years. And they showed that the part of the brain involved in visual maps, you know, that that part of the brain was much bigger in the, the experienced hacks versus the people who are just starting out. Um, same with musicians, you know, professional musicians versus amateur musicians versus non-musicians. So, um, you know, so anything you do is going to change your brain. And so adding the gratitude and forgiveness and you know, generosity, that's going to, you know, it may not be the hippocampus and the SMG, but it is definitely going to rewire the parts of the brain that are related to that and strengthen those. Very cool. Um, so we've got one from Christina. Um, she asks, from what age do you recommend practicing yoga and meditation? And just building on that, I'd be curious to ask, has there been research done on, you know, meditation and yoga in, in young school children, for example, and any effects that that has? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. There's been a lot of uh, research on that. Again, I don't follow all of it, but I do know um, they've done some studies where, uh, like, just in school, they'll just do, especially with little kids, like, you can't do 40 minutes with little kids, right? Even not in school settings. Little kids usually need just a few minutes, maybe five, 10 minutes, because that's all they can, they can, you know, the way to get bored and the whole thing. But what they do often is, especially like right after recess, and the kids are outside running around, you know, you can't just go from, running around, come in, okay, ABC, right? You need a transition of some mm -hmm. sort. And so what they find is that the yoga, the meditation are a great way to help them transition from running around or even just getting the day started. You know, it's sort of like, okay, well, you know, let's listen to the sounds, okay? And they're sort of slowly getting them quieter and quieter and focused. And so then they're, and so although they spent five of their minutes doing this, gets paid back in spades because then the kids are focused and attentive and they're ready to learn. Um, and so, so yes, you've lost five minutes, but you've gained it back. You gained it back. So there's been a couple of studies with young kids. I think even like first and second grade, they've done that. 
Um, I also know there's been some studies like with high schoolers showing that it decreases bullying, it increases test scores. Um, you know, it has some really, really wonderful effects on the teenage kids. So yeah, I think all the way through, it's, it's you can do quite a bit with them. Fantastic. Um, for anybody that's listening to this, who's sort of like maybe dabbled in a bit of meditation and they haven't been consistent, but they want to get into a, a consistent practice. Have you got any advice for, you know, building it into a daily routine into the morning or the evening or whatever? Like what have you found has worked best from what you've experienced? Yeah, again, I think it's, you know, for some people, it's got to be first thing in the morning. Other people prefer doing it end of day. It doesn't matter. You know, I know there's, in some yoga traditions, they say it must be done at 4 a.m. No, it does not. Again, it's one of those things like with the, you know, Olympic athletes, you know, the, um, you know, the, the, bicycle, the Olympic bicycle people, you know, they'll shave their legs and then the swimmers, they shave their body hair because, you know, that, you know, a tenth of a second, you know, so that the 4 a.m. is like shaving your body hair. Like you do not need to practice at 4 a.m. Um, so, and again, I think it's one of those, what's your preference? Um, frankly, I practice lying down because it's more comfortable for me. And so lots of times in the morning, you know, I was like, okay, I am not getting out of my bed. And so, and that was always the, for a long time, that was a stumbling block for me. I was like, I know I'm not going to get out of bed and meditate. I'm just, that's not going to happen today. So I just started practicing in bed. And that, for me, that works. Some people, they fall back asleep, but I can do it. Um, I also find for me, late in the day, like around four or five is actually the best time of day for me to practice. So lots of times, even though I'm still working, I just take, you know, five, 10 minutes and do a short meditation around five o'clock. And then if I have to keep working, um, because in my mind, for whatever reason, my mind tends to be really clear and calm right then. But I know that's not true for everybody. Uh, again, some people like to do it right before they go to sleep. So again, I'd say some people will do just like quick ones throughout the day. Other people like to do 40 minutes. Again, whatever works for you. Cool, cool. I heard in the talk you mentioned or you recommended Headspace, the meditation app. Um, yeah. Are there any other resources about meditation that you'd recommend or any specific guided meditations that you really like that you often recommend to people? Um, nothing in particular. Like I said, the Christy Gum or Christy Neff, the self-compassion ones are fantastic. Those are really, and again, for people with anger or low self-esteem and depression, they really powerful practices. Um, you know, there's other ones with self-compassion out there as well, or just compassion in general. Uh, really fantastic. Um, uh, there's other apps. The app I personally use is one called, um, uh, it's just mindfulness, right? The mindfulness timer bell. Bugging you now, hold on. Uh, yeah, oh, insight timer, that's what it's called. It's just that app. Insight timer, it's free. Uh, it's got a timer. So if you just, you know, and it rings a bell, you can t set it for any amount of time and it rings a bell for you. It also has thousands of guided meditations, all different lengths, different meditation traditions, uh, different types of meditation. There's compassion, there's mindfulness, there's, you know, all, there's some mystical ones. They also have just like nature sounds if you just want nature sounds. So I like that one just for the variety. Um, but there's other ones as well. There is one or two, I believe it's called Calm. It may not be called Calm. Or 10% Happier. I'm pretty sure it's 10% Happier. That one, you have the option of communicating with the teacher. You know, so writing questions and they write you back. And so that one is useful. Because the other ones, you know, again, they're great, but definitely work with the teacher as well. 
versus the 10% the happier, I'm pretty sure it allows you to communicate with the teacher. Um, and so, uh, um, but again, I'd say you just find one you like, you know, and see what works for you. Definitely, definitely. Um, yeah, I think that Cam app, Tasneem just mentioned that in the chat as well. So maybe that's what it is. Um, so we've time for a couple more questions. Um, Chris asks, is it possible to take you to take yoga away and Buddhism away and still like practice these in a in a secular fashion? Now, uh, I there's this the, the final speaker today, Dr. Andrew Newberg. I'm not sure if you're aware of his work or not. Um, uh-huh. He there's a study on his website where he compares people that are meditating when they're thinking about their religion or their belief system or God or whatever. And then he compares them with atheists who are also focusing on uh, the concept of God, even though they might not actually believe in it. And they find very, very different effects in in brain activity. So I was wondering, are you aware of that work? And what are your thoughts on the differences between meditating as an atheist and meditating as someone who has a um, really deep spiritual belief? Right. So I say talking because that's his thing and I definitely talk to Andy about that. There's also they did a study in India years ago with EEG where they had people repeating, you know, a mantra word, which has a spiritual meaning to it, or just repeating a random word. And again, same idea that they found something very, very different. Um and again, this idea of it's not what you do, it's how you do it. Um and again, like you anyone can kick a ball, but again, if you're kicking the ball and trying to aim for a goal or you know, using a particular part of your foot, it's going to be, you know, versus just kicking the ball randomly, you know, you're going to develop a slightly different skill depending on exactly how you do it. Um, MBSR, Mindfulness-Based Structure that Program, completely secular. There is no Buddhism in it. It is just sit and be aware and do the yoga and there's no Eastern philosophy in it. And again, highly effective. Would it be more effective if you add the philosophy? Maybe, maybe not. Because then you get into the other point though of like, well, who's practicing like if you have someone who's really christian you know adding eastern philosophy you know might backfire spectacularly or for an atheist you know and actually that was one of my stumbling blocks when i first got in it says you know this whole thing about rebirth and karma just like and it's funny because in america most of the time they don't talk about uh, rebirth and, and karma because most americans are just they don't buy it right um and so they don't include it because they know it's going to be a stumbling block so, uh, but they can put other parts of it. So, kind of. so, so definitely it's effective. It might be slightly different if you include the spiritual components to it, but there's not, you know, other than Andy and this one study in India, there's not been a lot I think about comparing like a long-term spiritual practice versus a long-term secular practice. Okay. Thanks very much. Um, so that's really all I've got time for, Dr. Lazar. I just want to say thank you so much for sharing some of the some of the incredible work you've been doing over the years with us. Really appreciate it. Um, I think people have really enjoyed it. Um, just before you go, you're on Twitter at Lazar Lab. Is that the handle? Yeah. Yep, Lazar Lab. Yeah. And have you got any sort of parting comments or any advice or anything you'd like to share with people watching this before before you go? Um, just have fun with it, you know, and, uh, see what works for you. Cool. Well, thank you very much. And everybody else, we're back at, uh, 3.30 PM UK time for a final talk with Dr. Andrew Newberg. So thanks again, Dr. Lazar, and I'll see you guys all soon. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. 
This episode is sponsored by our upcoming Day on Burnout online conference, taking place on February 27th, 2022. Burnout is a state of mental, emotional and physical exhaustion, affecting 57% of the UK's population. If it's not managed properly, it can lead to feelings of detachment, cynicism and ineffectiveness, many of these symptoms we associate with clinical depression. Recent years have seen sharp increases in those experiencing it, with one survey reporting a 9% increase in 2021 compared with pre-COVID numbers in 2019. So for this event, we'll be focusing on science-based strategies for preventing burnout, building resilience, and setting up our lives in a way that enables us to flourish and contribute in the long run. The first talk will be on preventing compassion fatigue and will be from Francoise Matthew. The second will focus on the dangers of toxic productivity, why we need to stop, and how a healthy amount of inactivity can lead to heightened levels of creativity and a more fulfilling existence. The speaker will be Professor Josh Cohen from Goldsmiths University. And the final talk will be from Dr. Anna Lemke, who will present on how to reset your brain's dopamine balance and why understanding how dopamine works in the brain holds the key to overcoming addictive behaviours and living with a greater sense of balance and contentment in day-to-day life. If you have a nagging suspicion that there's a better way of being in this world than the frantic, always-on and stimulation-seeking norms of our society, then this event is for you. By attending live, you can interact with the speakers in the Q&A sessions, connect with like-minded participants during the conference, get CPD certification, as well as lifetime access to the recordings from the sessions, meaning if you miss anything, you'll be able to catch up in your own time. As a listener of this podcast, you can get a discount on your ticket if you go to bit.ly forward slash burnout dash TWU and use the discount code POD when registering. That's POD, all one word when registering.